Okay. Hey, Greg. Justin, how you doing? Pretty good. I'm still learning how to do this new Facebook Live uh, and get it all shared. So sorry I, for any awkwardness here. I am, I am very grateful to you because that would be so far beyond my can. <laughs> I, I can post stuff to Facebook. I, I've noticed that. Yeah. I've noticed that. Well, and we, we need to circle back sometime and have the Facebook conversation. That's that, true. That's you know, true. We, we need to have the Facebook conversation. So let's get that in maybe for our uh, next live chat in a couple of weeks for uh, on top of whatever craziness happens between now and then. Yep. That's good. Well, it's good to see you. You um, doing your social distancing and staying home and staying safe and healthy and everything. Well, staying safe, uh, staying home, mostly going out for the occasional run to the grocery store and run to the wine store. Uh, but other than that, not, not much at all, socializing via Zoom. Uh, but yeah, you too, I assume. Yeah, yeah, mostly, yeah, trying to be good about it. And I am on Zoom more hours a day than I care to admit. And even when I try to stop, it seems like I get uh, sucked in, back into the Zoom world. Yeah, I, I, I feel your pain. So I wanted to start with a little bit of a somber note. I, um, I attended the uh, funeral of a good friend of ours, Kent Portney, over Zoom, or I guess Facebook Live as well, which was its own interesting interruption into the mourning process. But uh, Kent had been a regular um, guest of ours and was always a good to both of us and was such a treat to have. We'd had him on every season um, bringing some... Uh, excitement and laughter and uh, knowledge and insight to all kinds of topics. And uh, actually, as people may remember, uh, if they've been listening to the podcast, uh, you, I, uh, Kent, and uh, Andy Ross actually all joined uh, the Bush School at the same exact time. And so that was another kind of, uh, I guess, weird, weird one to, uh, to lose Kent. We'd all come up through the, through our Bush School days together. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I masked up and went to the memorial service live, the good social distancing, almost everyone in a mask, so all very responsible. It was very sad and, and with this undercurrent of terror, given the, given the, the, the conditions that we're, we're living in. But uh, Kent was a fabulous guy, a, a, an excellent scholar. A specialist on on urban politics, on environmental politics, on a range of issues, published so much was a real, a real, uh, a great hire for the Bush School, and uh, a great teacher. Two two of his PhD students from other departments, because we don't give PhDs at the Bush School, just master's degrees. But he he served as advisor to PhD students in other departments at A and M and. And two of them came and, and, and eulogized him. And so uh, it's tragic and uh, you know, condolences and, and, and solidarity with his wife, Marilyn, and, and his daughter, Lexi, and his son who, who came down and, and Kent's sisters who came down for the, for, the, for the memorial service. And it was all so sudden. Yeah, it was sudden. We also lost another colleague, Dave McIntyre. Um, his was, uh, was maybe a little less sudden, but also just as heartbreaking and heartfelt. He, we didn't happen to come in at the same time with him, but he was also around in the hallways and we had both served on panels and worked with him during his time uh, at the Bush School as well. And so he'll, he will also be missed. It's been kind of a somber, sad uh, moment, which I guess uh, given the tenor of some of the topics, uh, that are circulating through the news, having some, some uh, more somber moments, I guess, fit in with the moment. Um, but we do send our love out to Kent uh, and Dave and, and hope that they rest in peace and to their families um, as they mourn, and in particular to Marilyn, who's uh, a, a close friend of both yours and ours, uh, uh, you and I and our spouses, and uh, I know is, is struggling uh, right now, so our hearts go out to her as well. Indeed. So um, let's transition, and, and I, I think um, both those fine gentlemen would want us to carry on and uh, still try to inject a little bit of humor and, uh, and move forward in our, in our typical way. 
But uh, sadly, we have to move right on to what I think is an equally sober topic, which is, you know, we're seeing these uh, significant increases in uh, COVID-19 cases in a number of states. I'm going to forget the number, but it was something like 23 states. I think the cases were up. The U.S. had its third most reported cases of the entire pandemic, I think, yesterday. Texas had its highest uh, reported cases. Um, in Georgia, uh, where I've been, cases are up. In Florida, cases are up. And, um, and the, the hospitalizations, and, you know, to be fair to the data, have not ticked up in the same way. Right. We also know those hospitalizations lag to some significant degree the new cases. So let's hope that some of the treatments keep the hospitalizations down in general. But I, I, I don't think it uh, is completely fair to take away from that that the hospitalizations aren't going to go back up. Um, oh, and, and we know they're going up in the Houston area. Yeah. Uh, now, Houston is a world center, a world medical center, and has lots of hospital beds. But, but we're, all get, we're already getting reports from the Houston area, from Harris County, that, that while they're not full up, they're, they're worried about availabilities uh, given the trend lines uh, and you know here in the Brazos Valley our cases are going up as well uh, we are we're not at a, a kind of a critical point on hospital beds but again uh, you have to watch the you have to watch the trends because we know what happened in New York and uh, the, the, the tragic lack of uh, medical facilities in New York, but it is also very interesting that the death rate is going down. Uh, the cases are going up, but the number of deaths from the cases is being reduced. And I, I don't know if that's, you know, I'm no doctor, I'm no epidemiologist, I don't even play one on television. <laughs> but uh, it's clear that something is happening. Either we're learning something at ground level about how to deal with patients who have COVID, uh, or there's been some kind of mutation in, 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 the, in the strain that's hitting the South and Southwest that, that is less lethal, you know, still very serious, but less lethal. Or, you know, a lot of the cases that we're seeing down here in Texas are in the younger age group. Mm -hmm. uh, here in the county, uh, among this recent spike in cases, the largest single group uh, of cases are, are, are young adults, 18 to 24. And uh, those folks, I mean, it's still serious and we don't know the long-term consequences of getting, getting COVID, but they are much more likely to succumb than, than folks uh, in older age groups or folks with, uh, with comor you know, more, a range of comorbidities. So, so yeah, I, I mean, things are changing about the, about the virus, but the numbers in Texas and in other states down here in the South and Southwest are just not good. But in Georgia, not, not as bad, I guess. Yeah, the, the hospitalizations don't seem to be. The cases uh, are also going up, but the hospitalizations don't seem to be going up uh, much yet, um, which is encouraging. Um, yeah. So yeah, it'll be interesting. I find it all a bit, um, you know, continually frustrating. I've been, one of the things that I, a graph that stuck with me this week was comparing the cases in the European Union to the cases in the US. I'm sure if you were following along, you saw this as well. And um, I, it's been going on so long, it's hard to hold extended outrage about failed leadership about failed opportunities, about repeated failed leadership and repeated failed opportunities. And also this sort of politicization of the actual tools that can be the most helpful, um, yeah. such as mask wearing. Um, this continues, I mean, it's, it's weird how it's been a little bit normalized, but it continues to be in the number of people I encounter that wearing a mask has now become kind of a partisan symbol um, is really, truly, I mean, is, is I think a, a really worrisome trend as we start to uptick in some of these cases, even if the rate, the more, you know, the death rate is lower, it's still going to be on a larger and larger number because people aren't staying at home. People aren't wearing masks. Um, so this, this seems like this is going to be just a, a huge challenge over the next couple months as people are also tired of being cooped up just like us, just like everybody else. And then the partisanship of the mask wearing 
I mean, what you, I'm a little worried about how the summer, and this is all while things are heating up and it was supposed to slow down was the talking point early on. Right. You know, I'm a little worried about how, if these trends continue, what this means for all sorts of fall plans. I mean, one, some of the sports, you know, major sports are starting to finally come to agreement about starting things. We were talking about some of the plans at um, A&M trying to make sense of what to do in the fall. But uh, just hard to imagine when we get our hands around this. It, it seems like we've just failed completely. I, you know, I, I break this into two issues. Uh, one is mask wearing. And there I think that uh, we've had bad leadership on that all around. I mean, our, our, our trusted scientific authorities at the beginning of the lockdown down told us not to wear masks. Well, we subsequently find out, and Dr. Fauci has been honest about this, that they knew that it would have been better for us to wear masks if we were out, but they wanted to save the masks for medical professionals, but they didn't trust us enough to tell us that. So they said, oh no, don't wear masks. Uh, and and I, I think that that kind of set a tone. Uh, and then the president, you know, has been, uh, He's been derelict on the mask question. Ooh, he should, you know, he should, he should have been, you know, once, once we got over this, uh, don't wear a mask because the people in the hospitals need them. He should have been modeling better behavior. He should have been wearing a mask when he was out. He should have been encouraging people to wear masks, not say, oh yeah, there's instructions to wear a mask, but I'm not going to do it. I think that our local leadership is, uh, just yesterday, the governor of Texas urged us all to wear masks while we were out, uh, but I don't think that he's going to uh, place uh, rules in effect that we have to. And the, the most that he's willing to do is allow municipalities to do so, and I think a number of the larger municipalities in Texas have imposed mask regulations on businesses. Uh, I think we just have to do that. But then there's the lar larger question about the shutdowns and the reopenings. Uh, look, there's enough blame to go around here, right? Even people who uh, seem to have done okay, whether it be Governor Cuomo in New York or the Italian government, made real mistakes at the beginning. So I, there's very few governments that didn't make mistakes at the beginning. Uh, but I think that, that in general, both the federal government and a number of state governments just basically said, we're, we're not, we're not going to impose anything anymore. And, and it was, was a combination of just the economic pressures, of, of folks being fed up, of, uh, of the protests, you know, and, and I thought the protests were, were extremely important in our national dialogue. And, and at least so far, the evidence is, because uh, there was a lot of mask wearing and they were outside, that they, they haven't been super spreader events, thank God. But, uh, you know, once people go outside in large numbers and, and businesses start opening up, it's really hard to put the, 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 the screw the, the top back on that bottle, right? And I just, I just get no sentiment at any level that there's going to be a return to, to those kinds of, of restrictions, no matter what the cases are. I think that's really frightening. Just so we pause for just a moment. I want to move on to it because I feel like I'm being a little downer, but um, I, I, my, my intuitions are the same that there isn't a level of cases that would cause a rethinking of some, some strategies um, where finding a way to have pe more people be at home or better equipped to be out in public would clearly save lives and improve the economy at the same time. And I, we don't seem equipped to be able to make those hard decisions uh, in most leadership positions right now. Right. And, and I think the big decisions have been pushed down to the states. It just doesn't appear that the federal government is going to, is going to take a lead role in any of this. Well, before we start talking about some interesting things going in Texas. I want to keep the conversation at the federal level. And as sort of 
election season season is unfolding and we're moving back into campaign mode. Um, and we've been dealing with COVID and thinking about protests and thinking about systematic inequality. And, you know, the president hasn't necessarily, the president's been at some of this, but hasn't been kind of the center talking point. And it, it does get tired talking about him. So um, it's a topic that some of his behavior in particular that we haven't really talked about in a while. So I wanted to just kind of share with you and, and share with the audience that um, I checked in to the re-election campaign rally in Tulsa just via Twitter and following along some of the some of the excerpts and some of the quotes. And I hadn't watched the president kind of give a speech, and certainly not in uh, election mode in some time. Um, and I, I have to say, Greg, it's really disturbing. Um, and I know there's a lot of partisan stuff going on right now, but you know, one of the, you know, there's a couple of things that, that, that were just ridiculous um, for a president in general to be behaving in a re-election campaign. But then there was things like, you know, I told them to slow down testing because, uh, you know, if you test more people, you're going to get more cases. And then when followed up and given the opportunity to say that was a joke, just kind of doubles down um, as if to uh, kind of make a mockery of the whole public health crisis. Um, and so this on top of some of the language kind of law and order will get you protesters that have caused even Twitter to label his tweets as um, problematic. <laughs> um, you know, this isn't, it, it feels like it's normal because it's been going on for so long, but as we're entering a re-election dialogue throughout the country, I think this stuff is really, is really concerning. The, the strategy that he's coming out of the gate with is law and order kind of um, uh, uh, harsh responses to protesters, even peaceful ones, talking about 10 years in prison for people who deface statues. Um, and it seemed to me that like, this is just a, it's setting a really concerning tone. And then the other piece I wanted to say, and then I wanted to get some of your thoughts on, there's also, you know, a lot of the conservative elites in ways that were folks that were, have worked for him have been close to him, close to the military, are hesitant to speak out, really saw some of these behaviors leading up to the rally, not necessarily since the rally, but with some of the behaviors leading up to the rally, really take, taking a moment and, and trying to warn the whole world that the, the president is a danger to the constitution and is a danger to the country. And this is something from Jim Mattis, right? These aren't like, this is not partisan folks. These are people who've worked with him and are now really worried about how, um, his behavior in office. And I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to get on this over and over, over the summer, but I wanted to take a moment and say, I mean, this is really, um, for people paying attention, people should really be paying attention to who's speaking out and what's going on with this presidential administration as they start thinking about voting. Um, because I know people have become numb to it, but this is, this is really a dangerous moment, I think. Well, neither you nor I have been a, a fan of the president, so we we should we should stipulate that. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that. So I'll tell you what I'm more worried about, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I'm kind of analytically looking at. The thing that I worry about the most is not the Law and Order campaign. I think he's running a, a very much against the national mood right now. Uh, he's, he's relying on an electoral strategy, a rhetorical strategy that worked for him in 2016, barely, right? But I don't think fits the, fits the context of the country at this point, uh, both because it runs against what I think is a, uh, and I want to be too optimistic about these things, but, but what is a, a more serious engagement with the issue of racism, which I think during the Obama administration, lots of, lots of folks, you know, lots of white folks like me said, oh boy, it's getting better. Look, we elected an African-American president. But, uh, you know, the events of the last month have brought home, you know, to those of us who who maybe were hoping that things were getting better, that, that in some scores they're not getting better. 
Uh, and so I think the president is running against the tide there. Uh, uh, and, and it shows in the polls, right? I mean, the New York Times did its first poll. The election had Biden 50, Trump 36. That's a 14-point gap, right? There was the CNN poll with a 12-point gap. Uh, the president, I think, knows that he's not doing great. Uh, but the thing I worry about is the delegitimizing of the election already. Uh, the, the constant refrain that mail-in ballots are fraudulent. We know they're not fraudulent, right? Hundreds of thousands of Americans vote by mail regularly. In some states like Oregon and, and Utah, it, it's the norm. And it has been for a number of electoral cycles. And there's no evidence of, of any, even, even, even minor levels of fraud compared to in-person voting. Uh, and, and so I do worry, you know, there was some talk in 2016 when the president was campaigning and he said, oh, you know, it's all gonna be fixed. It's all... And then he won. So the only thing he had to complain about was he didn't win the popular vote and that was because of fraud, but it, it, it didn't make a difference to our constitutional order because he had won the electoral college. But uh, I, I worry, if he's already delegitimizing the election and what happens if he loses, uh, then, then things become uh, trickier. And that's yeah. what I worry about. You know, other than that, it's the president. I mean, the president's the president, right? As a famous American statesman said, it is what it is. <laughs> you know, the president uh, doesn't like anybody to think he's weak. And so, you know, he, he spends 10 minutes talking about his walk down the ramp at West Point, like anyone cares, right? Uh, so the, the opponents of the president know how to get under his skin. Yeah. And, and he lets them. But that's who he is. So not much we can do about that. Yeah. The kind of broadside attacks on electoral integrity uh, does seem to be as high as anything on the list of what Americans, I think, should be concerned about. Yeah. So we have an, a question from the audience on um, related to COVID-19, related to um, responses by the president. So the question from the audience is, with the EU possibly barring American travelers in July, do you think U.S. global leadership has been, or to what extent, impacted by its COVID response? So the general question is, where does, you know, how bad has COVID, if, how has COVID affected the uh, U.S.'s leadership role in the world? I don't think it's affected its leadership role. I think it's affected the perception of the United States in the world. Uh, we know that the Trump administration is not partial to international institutions. It's not partial to, to leading through those institutions. Uh, and, uh, that was exemplified by our decision to quote unquote withdraw from the World Health Organization, which we don't really know what that means. Apparently American health officials are still cooperating with colleagues at the WHO and working with them. It certainly means that, that uh, America's financial contribution is going to either go down or end, but I don't know when that, that is. Uh, again, we're in this kind of syndrome where the president says something and everybody reacts to it, but does it actually change anything, right? Uh, so, but this, this notion that the United States, the, the, the Trump administration's notion that the United States is, is not going to be tied down by international institutions, that, uh, that our relationship with our European allies is one where the Europeans are taking advantage of us, uh, I, I, and, and the president's desire to, to kind of point the finger at China for the, for the spread of the virus globally is, it's not new, but it's just been exacerbated, I think, by, by the crisis of COVID. Here's, here's another thing, and I'll speak more to my, my own academic interest, which is the Middle East, not Europe. Or, or East Asia. One of the things that people in the Middle East always thought America was really good at was technology. You, we can solve problems through technology. 
you know, and for, for older people in the Arab world, I talked to them and there was still this fascination that America put a man on the moon, you know, you put a man on the moon. <laughs> and I think we're just losing that. We're losing that mojo. We're losing that reputation. You know, we, we lost it to some extent with our invasion of Iraq. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't fix the water systems. We couldn't fix the electricity. And I think that people in the, in the Middle East look at that and say, the Americans can't get the lights to work. The Americans can't get the water system to work. This is what we thought they could do, right? And, and, uh, and I think that the large number of cases that we've had of COVID just kind of contributes to that declining reputation about our technological our technological prowess and our, our success at governance, which is troubling. Do you think, um, you know, some of the conversations I hear from your, from your department in uh, international affairs is, as we think, as we think about kind of U.S. strategy with the rest of the world, and I, and I, one of the conversations I hear talking about is, are we, have we moved from this U.S. kind of dominated world to more of a multi-polar sharing power with other, other countries? And I've been kind of thinking about this related to what should the U.S.'s policy be related to artificial intelligence from a technological standpoint and the overall well-being, both for American citizens, but for also for humans uh, kind of more generally? I mean, is it your sense, and I don't know where the scholarship is, so maybe you could say a little bit about that, but is there sort of an acknowledgement of this more generally that our, strategy, our optimal strategies need to take into account that it's not a unipolar or bipolar world anymore and we need to think more carefully about strategic partnerships and influence in that way? Is that sort of how it's being talked about these days or what's your sense of that? Well, so no, there's an active debate in the scholarship. I mean, some of the recent books are about, one of them was entitled Exit from Hegemony. And, and I think that that, uh, kind of sums up as a title, some of the arguments that are being made. Uh, whether it's because of the rise of China, whether it's because of the reemergence of Russia, whether it's because of uh, mistakes that we have made in our leadership role, whether you're going back to the invasion of Iraq, going back to the, to the financial crisis of, of 07, 09, uh, and then the current, the current crisis, uh, there's a sense that, that the, uh, the unnaturally powerful dominant position the U.S. held in the world after the end of the Cold War is kind of inevitably uh, being lost. And it was an unnatural position, right? The idea that there was no global challenger, that there was no other global power. Well, now, you know, we've got China which is, it's, it's not a global military power, but it's a global economic power. And it's an increasingly important military power in East Asia and, and uh, perhaps soon in other parts of the world. But uh, the debate is what should America do about it, right? Do we double down on international institutions which we built and attempt to, to use them to continue to, to both promote our interests and our values, which means getting the democracies together, the Europeans, our Asian democratic allies like South Korea and Taiwan and Japan, uh, work with uh, an imperfect democracy in India, work with an authoritarian government in Vietnam, but one that worries about Chinese power and seems more open to us than uh, one could have imagined in my youth when we were fighting a war in Vietnam. Uh, do we engage? Do we draw back? You know, is, is this a time for restraint? Right? These, are the, these are the arguments that basically center on our fiascos in the Middle East, right? our, our, our over-reliance on military power. And it's time for America to show a more restrained foreign policy and be more modest in its goals. Uh, and then there's the, the, the more extreme argument that sometimes the president puts out, although not usually the, the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense, but sometimes the president basically says, who needs these foreigners? They're taking advantage of us. They're giving us bad deals, all right, right? America first, which was his unapologetic campaign slogan 
in 2016, even though for those historically minded, they'll remember that that was Charles Lindbergh and, and the isolationist movement before World War II, whose slogan and whose name was America First. So yeah, I mean, I think that the, the academic debate uh, doesn't involve that kind of uh, more radical withdrawal from the world, but there is a, there's a serious kind of academic slash policy debate, double down on institutions, sustain military power, or be more restrained in, in our, our, our goals and, and in certainly how we use our power. That was the IA lesson I, had, I needed that I hadn't had in a while. It's exactly what I was looking for. So what's, so what's the talk in your department? What, what are the debates? Are there debates about state capacity? You know, the ability of government to do its job, which the COVID crisis has called into question for some people? Yeah, I think it's uh, shook some people's sense of the institutional capacity that even though there was some hollowing out and even though there was, you know, a lot of uh, kind of hollowing out too at the leadership level that we still had the capacity when we, when we moved the American model, the, the general governing model, which would include private sector and nonprofit and government, that when we really got our engines going, we could rise to kind of any occasion. Uh, that's kind of the narrative left over from gearing up for World War II, I think. And I think people, you know, people like our friend uh, Rob Greer and uh, our friend Ann Bowman would sort of seem through some of these, particularly uh, looking at local finance and the situation in which a lot of cities capacity has dwindled and people paying attention to the federal level knew that a lot of capacity had been kind of hollowed out and then a lot of leadership had been hollowed out. So from a system standpoint, I don't think it was necessarily um, surprising. Um, and I think, but I think there was this like, it couldn't be, right? Like it just couldn't, we couldn't be that bad at it, right? Like all, this, all the signs are there and we would moan and groan about them. But I think everyone sort of thought like, but yeah, we can still like come up with enough like, you know, testing. Like, we'll still get there. It'll take us a couple months, but yeah. we'll, we'll do it. And we'll, we'll have it. enough masks. And, and we, we know how to solve these kind of problems once we're motivated. And I think the real scary, you know, the scary thing from the domestic side is the, um, the, the widespread governance failures across the federal government, but also across lots and lots of states and also across lots and lots of local levels. Like this abdication of responsibility in a moment of crisis that, uh, you know, a lot of people just intuitively feel like, oh, you're our leader. And at our point, like everything else going on in the world, they, they, you can, everyone can tell when a leader's abdicating. Like everyone's like, oh yeah, you're blaming somebody else. Or, oh yeah, you're trying to blame someone else. It's like an intuitive human thing. And there's so, um, there's so much of that going on right now. Um, so. but, is, but is the debate among your colleagues on the level of this is, this is a question of leadership and with better leadership, our institutional capacity will come back? Or, is, or, or, or are there arguments that we have hollowed out our state capacity through uh, privatization, through uh, tax cutting, uh, through the idea that you, you outsource uh, government, what, what have uh, historically been considered government obligations. I mean, probably the most noticeable one is prisons, controversial, but we outsource all sorts of, of what used to be government functions, right? Yeah, so the hollow out was a term in the literature that had been around uh, for quite some time. Uh, the consequences of contracting so many different things out and a lack of ability to have either redundancies or backstops or a managerial control. These, weren't, uh, these were sort of well noted continuation trends that fit with the, uh, uh, I don't know exactly what the mindset is, but this idea that everything can be done in the private sector, no matter what the good is, 
that that kind of neoliberal uh, yeah. mindset led to just a complete decimation of of the capacity of those organizations outside of uh, maybe some of the defense uh, pieces that are still a little bit more well-funded and, and a lot of, because of national security reasons, you keep some of the human capital, um, human capital built up. Mm -hmm. Well, do you have any good news? I do have some good news. Well, I think it's good news. Um, and uh, one I was going to say, you know, contracting out of prisons, I'm going to come out and say, Greg, um, I don't think it should be that controversial. We had some couple of groups of students look at it and it is just mostly a net bad. Um, just as a side note. <laughs> but we do have some good news and it fits in with this conversation about institutions and balance of power. And um, those are things that we value here in the US and our governance system. And the judicial branch has had something to say a couple, couple things about some of the executive initiatives. There were two in particular that, um, uh, that I'm aware of that, that we can talk a little bit about, but this is providing more protections for LGBT, uh, LGBT and LGBTQ workers so that they can't be discriminated against um, in the workplace as one, and also limits on the administration's ability to terminate um, DACA um, and uh, issuing a stay, you know, essentially a stay of uh, allowing that to continue on, at least in the short term. And those um, those seem like clear human rights wins to me, and it was kind of nice to um, to see those. What is, uh, what's your take of some of the recent uh, SCOTUS rulings? So I, I, I would prefer things to be done legislatively. I oh, think that- yeah. on, Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> they're, on, they're on a firmer basis if you do things legislatively. Uh, but uh, we have a hard time on all sorts of issues, getting legislation through. Uh, on DACA, uh, you know, on the substance, I was very happy. It was a very narrow ruling though, right? It was that it was a procedural decision that the, the president's executive order, in essence, uh, ending the DACA program, uh, did not, had, did, was not procedural, was not done according to process, which is to say, Kind of arbitrary. Valid, valid reasons were not given for it, rather kind of arbitrary and, and, and uh, post facto reasons were given for it. And, and, and one can, you know, I'm no lawyer and I don't play one on TV. Uh, two for two. Yeah, but uh, one can imagine, uh, uh, you know, you get a couple smart lawyers on this, and they could they could solve those they could solve those problems, uh, which is why I think we need legislation to guarantee uh, the recipients of DACA uh, a safe and, and 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 stable and secure path to citizenship in the United States and and a safe and stable and secure uh, right of residence. Uh, I, I'm I'm a I'm very liberal on immigration, I'd be very happy to, to extend that to all sorts of, of folks. I think immigration is a great strength of this country. I think it's an economic strength of this country. I think one of the dumbest things that I've seen in a long time was the president uh, ending H1, you know, suspending H1B visas for the rest of this year. I mean, those are, those are talented people who will help our economy. Uh, so, I. I on, on the LGBTQ issues, again, I think that these issues are firmer if they're done through legislation. Uh, you know, I, my position on this has always been, you know, LGBTQ citizens are citizens and enjoy all the rights of citizenship. And I think that that means that you shouldn't be able to be fired for stuff that has nothing to do with your job. <laughs> right pretty straightforward <laughs> yeah. Does, uh, uh, you're doing your job you don't doing your job you're not doing your job you get fired if you're doing your job can't fire you unless uh, you know unless the place is going bankrupt and they're firing everybody right uh, but but I think that there are there are there are cases that are stickier 
because they, they, they hit on religious freedom issues. And, and uh, I know for, for many people that, that, that right, that element of our rights is secondary to the, the, the personal rights sought by, LB, uh, by LGBTQ citizens. But I do think that, that, you know, if you're a religious institution, it's a stickier question if you have an employee who is publicly questioning your religious teaching. Uh, and I think that that, I'd like to see legislation that finds some kind of place where where we can settle on that for a while in the context of protecting the overall rights of LGBTQ citizens as citizens, the same kinds of rights that, that other people have. So I, I think that that's a, that's a narrow set of cases uh, as opposed to the broader finding in the, in the Supreme Court decision, which you know, we should note was not 5-4, it was 6-3. You know, with two with two of the quote unquote conservative justices, not just Gorsuch but uh, Chief Justice Roberts joining that decision, Gorsuch writing it, Chief Justice Roberts joining it, uh, and that makes it a, a, a firmer you know fir a firmer bit of law. One one replacement doesn't change it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think. Um... We're going to continue. There's a couple of interesting cases coming down. I know the, uh, I don't actually recall the details, but there's a case around abortion that's supposed yeah. to be coming there's out. An, there's an abortion case. I don't know if that's this term or next term, but. I think it's this term. Um, you mean a decision coming down? Because the so. term ends really soon, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't remember the exact dates, but I thought I, thought I, I, thought I uh, saw that the abortion case was coming down in this session, but I could be wrong. I thought, and again, I could be wrong too. I thought it was that the court decided to hear it next session. Mm. Mm. That could be. The court, I mean, the court goes out sometime really soon, right? The end of okay. June, right? Okay. They start. They start in October and go through June, I think. So I think we should shift to talking about Texas A and M. Uh, last time. We were talking about uh, some things we were uh, um, kind of engaging in the conversations about systemic racism and systemic inequality. We've been having that conversation on campus. We've been having that conversation at the Bush School. Yep. What does this look like in the age of a lot of folks uh, becoming more aware of uh, white supremacy, racial injustice, um, and so this is at the very much at the front of the conversation and it's playing out culturally in lots of um i think interesting ways and in one of the ways it's playing out at home at texas a&m is around uh, a monument around a statue and um there is a statue on campus of the former texas a&m president lawrence sullivan Saul ross who according to the description of the texas tribune was a former confederate governor uh, excuse me, a former Confederate general and Texas governor, mm -hmm. um, and also did a lot in the way of, of uh, moving forward early Texas A&M that we could talk a little bit about. Um, but this has become a flashpoint among students with, uh, some, uh, with athletes speaking out, um, counter protests that uh, seem to be of about the same amount of uh, signatures. I was looking at something earlier, was like competing remove the statue or keep it. And they were both like 24 versus 25,000. So there seems to be some like split in the community. Um, this is also things that have played out uh, all over the country. And this is just the example of the one here at Texas A&M. Do you want to say something about this? Should I share some thoughts first? What, how do you want to, how do you want to talk about this, Greg? Well, I, I, you know, I think that these statute issues all over the, country and, and all over the world are just fascinating occasions to talk about history and what history means. I mean, uh, and, and 
you know, the, the term teachable moment is, a, is way overused. But I do think that this focus on, on statues is, is really a, a way for all of us to teach each other about how we view, how we view our history. Uh, so I'm, I'm open-minded on the Saul Ross question. Uh, I'm not an Aggie, you're not an Aggie. We, 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 are, we are faculty members, but we are not alums. Uh, and so we, we are not as baked into the, to the traditions of, of Aggieland as some of the folks who feel very passionate about keeping the Sol Ross statue. Uh, I think it's a good idea that the president appointed a commission. I can understand why people who want change say, oh my Lord, another commission, right? Another task force. But I actually think a conversation about the statue and, and the history of Texas A&M is, this is a good occasion for it. And, and I think more people will be open to it now. Uh, I also think that, uh, you know, there, for me, there's a continuum of statues, right? There's, there's Confederate monuments with uh, soldiers or, or, or historical figures like Robert E. Lee uh, uh, depicted in Confederate uniforms. So, you know, I'm a Yankee. <laughs> Get rid of those people. I, I, you know, they led a rebellion against the United States of America. Uh, and so I'm, I, you know, I'm fine with that. But, but then you get into more nuanced questions. I mean, statues put up to somebody like uh, George Washington, who was certainly a slaveholder. Uh, but the statues were put up to him, not because he was a slaveholder or defender of slavery, but because he was the father of our country. That doesn't mean that his involvement with slavery shouldn't be interrogated and, and shouldn't be questioned and his historical reputation. That should be part of his historical reputation. But I also, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop talking on this, um, I also kind of have, have been thinking about, well, do I get a say in this, right? I'm an old white guy, comfortable with a certain version of American history that's been, you know, very good to me. Uh, but maybe the feelings of, of, of people who, uh, who see these statues as symbolic as more immediately symbolic of a repressive history, maybe their voice should count for more than mine. So I, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to seeing what this commission of smart people that the president of the university has, has appointed comes up with. All right, there, I've bared my soul. <laughs> you, you, you got to bear your soul now too. Um, so I think a couple things, I think there is, a question about specific monuments and whether or not specific monuments should come down. And then I think there's a question about communities coming together to talk honestly and try to find ways to hear one another out. And I'll contrast leadership here and maybe uh, a way that I think highlights what I mean by this. So our Dean, you know, um, has come out uh, and put forward a process where we've been having some regular meetings about diversity and inclusion, has come out in, uh, in support of uh, our student diversity and inclusion committee's concerns, trying to find common ground, trying to build a dialogue, trying to hear what they have to say, uh, engage in sort of a longer term process about how can we systematically improve how we approach issues of systematic inequality in our society and what we can do as a leading institution to, to help remedy those, right? And that's how I think about what our, the way we should approach this, right? It's not always clear what the right answer is. It's not always clear whose voices should count the most. It's not always clear that all people can kind of see it, um, you know, from the same point of view. And so I think it's important to bring lots and lots of voices 
you know, there are then kind of, you know, I was reading this Texas Tribune piece, and in 2008, John Sharp says, we are all entitled to our opinion, but we are not entitled to our own wrong-headed facts. Lawrence Sullivan Ross will have his statue at Texas A&M forever, not because of obstinance, but because he deserves the honor with a lifetime of service to, in all caps, all Texans, and all caps, all Aggies. So, you know, when that's the position, and then it says in an email, system spokesman Leywin Copeland said Sharp's opinion about the statue has not changed. Right. So when the when the when the lead person, the head, the, the chancellor kind of is at the top of the system of the university system, puts out a statement like that and then doubles down on it. it it's hard for people of of communities that have suffered oppression under these same concerns of systematic inequality. And to them, this monument represents that. Now, there's a question of like whether it should be there what we should do about it, what it represents, but it clearly hurts these individuals who feel strongly about it with, with what I think is clearly good reason. There were things the Confederacy fought for that, that we, we certainly completely disavow as a country now, slavery being one of the main reasons, right? So it's, it's frustrating, I think, to, like, to, to, to my generation, but also to people who just have a different view about what Sully, as, as the more affection name is, means then when the top of one of the people at the top of your organization opening blows are, this is settled forever, full stop. And so I think we need to, um, as an institution, think about the message that we're signaling independent of whether the particular statue of Ross should be taken down or not as, a, as kind of a starting point. The second thing that I'll say is just so... <laughs> Just so we're clear, I just don't care for monuments of people. Just as a as a secondary thing, like I I, I get it. I get the idea that certain humans embodied certain things that we want to aspire to, but I'd much rather find ways to represent that than humans who are always going to have all kinds of failings. Like what represents the ideal, not the individual. So just my own bias in these things is like I don't like seeing statues of people. Full stop. That's weird. We don't need to worship people. So I'm just, in general, not a big fan of monuments. But so, so you're going to be again, I assume that when I step down as department head, they're going to put a statue of me up outside the Bush School. You're going to be against that? I'm going to protest it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to have to see you in a statue when I come into the office. <laughs> so, you know, I think um, the specifics of actual this, uh, you know, Sully, as he's called, um, I think are, are difficult for Aggies for lots of reasons. He clearly invested a lot in A&M and um, helped the school survive as, as is claimed and helped invest also in Prairie View as I, as the, as I understand. Um, but also, you know, he was still a Confederate general and um, was still fighting on behalf of of maintaining slavery. And so we do need to think about how to balance those things and then what that symbols to the communities we say we care about. What does it symbolize to our African-American students, for example, if our most, one of our most cherished monuments, the things that we all say we place the most value on just happens to be also a Confederate general, yeah. right? And so we, I think we all need to kind of think about, you know, everyone has heroes and everyone has versions of stories that they hold dear. But think about what those stories look like from a different perspective. Think about that, what that looks like from your classmates' perspectives or your colleagues' perspectives who don't have the same kind of white version of history that they grew up with, um, that like you and I grew up with. It's a, whole, it's a whole different way. And so, you know, and there's some parallels from other points of history that you can kind of think about how a, a minority group that was oppressed by a society, it would be really weird then to have them be involved with the institution that memorializes the same people that part of their main political platform was keeping those people oppressed. So I do find it troubling that the chancellor's response is essentially we're not talking about this, no matter what the, what, what the community might come to. And I think it shows not the best faith of having this conversation honestly with the, with the students and with the communities who, whether you agree or not, are hurt by memorializing certain, certain, types of individuals. <coughs> Goodness. Yeah. You, you, 
you, you, you talk so much that you got COVID. You know, <laughs> uh, so I, I'm hoping this commission that the president's appointed will look into some of the interesting things that other people have done with statues. You know, I, I think, I, I'm pretty sure it's Hungary after the fall of communism. They took all of these monuments to Stalin and the communist leaders of Hungary and all, and, and they took them down from the city squares and in front of the government buildings. And they put them all in a park and, and, and uh, you know, labeled them and, and in the favorite word of the day regarding this, contextualized them. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not that they got rid of them, they, but they took them out of their place of prominence and put them in a place where people could reflect upon what they meant in a deeper sense for the history of the country. There, there are ways to deal with these things and, and uh, we'll, see, we'll, see, we'll see what our colleagues come up with on the commission. You're not on the commission, are you? I'm not on the commission. I can't believe that they didn't put you on the commission. But we have I should to- have, I should have nominated you. <laughs> that's, a, that's okay, that's okay. Um, we have two questions and I think um, we should address them real quick. The first one's related to monuments and the second one is related to uh, President Trump. Yeah, so we, I can, take the, we can finish off with President Trump. Yeah, I want to take the monument one first. Yeah. So um, this audience member is concerned uh, about removing statues and, say, and says, but aren't you eliminating opportunities to talk about differing perspectives when you remove historical monuments? And um, I guess I'll go, I'll go first with that. I think um, that you certainly de-emphasize the focus on certain pieces of history by not having the same monuments, uh, the things be like the same types of monuments. You choose to focus on different aspects of history by whatever monuments you, um, you put out on display to represent what your values are and what your symbols are. And so you can't have an unlimited amount of monuments. You can't have an unlimited amount of symbols. And so my one way of thinking about this is we should have the monuments that best represent us and the types of values we want to aspire to. And that can include a whole sets of monuments. So I think that it doesn't necessarily um, remove um, eliminate opportunities to continue to talk about historical things because we have different monuments in place, but it does change. It does change how we think about them or the parts we focus on. If we're not going to glorify by monument, by monument Sully, who then do we think represents us? And that sparks conversation. So I do agree with kind of the general assertion that it probably de-emphasizes or defocuses that particular person and their role in history, um, but it does open up more opportunities to have other types of conversations. Um, and particularly in a moment when we are having these conversations throughout society, um, it gives us an opportunity to memorialize other things as well. Um, but I'm also not sure if taking the statue down is what's needed to make that point. Um, but I do think we need to have an honest conversation about whether it's the statue we would like to have as a main memorial and whether that doesn't represent Aggies anymore. And I think we can in good faith have that conversation and see where we end up. Greg? Yeah, that's where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. I, I, th I think, you know, the creative relocation of <clears throat> monuments can be a way to, uh, I, I, hate to, I hate to sound like an academic, but I am one recontextualize <laughs> the conversation about people and about our, and about our history. The thing I will say about this is I think it would be helpful if everyone could take a moment and try to hear the other person's side without assuming that because we disagree on this, um, that that makes us enemies or on necessarily a different, uh, different camp. Or, um, or that the arguments are being made in bad faith. Or the arguments are being made in bad faith. Um, 
And I think we should be really careful, particularly with things that have such historical significance um, and weight to them to not infer bad intent on the other side as we have this conversation. Yeah. So the last question, which is, uh, will be, I think a fun one to end on. Do you think it'll be difficult to recover from Trump's presidency, both in terms of domestic and foreign policy, especially if he gets a second mandate? I would call that a loaded question, Greg. I, I, I think that that question came from our viewer, Joe Biden. <laughs> from his basement in Wilmington, Delaware, where I, where I was born and raised. Not in his basement, but I was born and raised in Wilmington, Delaware. So I, get, I, get, I just get a little, it gives me just a little a fleeting moment of happiness when, 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 you know, the stories about Biden say, from his basement in Wilmington, Delaware, I go, oh, Wilmington, Delaware, where I was born and raised. <laughs> um, so a second Trump term, right, th this is the Biden argument, right? The Biden argument is elect me today, elect me in November, and I can reverse all the bad things, all of the, all the norm breaking. I can restore our democratic norms, which I contend Donald Trump is violating. Uh, but if you elect Donald Trump, that's it, it's over, it's done, he'll have four more years and our democratic system will go away. I, I think that, that that's, a, that's a somewhat of a caricature of Biden's argument, but not a complete caricature. Uh, I certainly think that, that the president with four more years, uh, I think will get tired of governing. He already seems to be tired of dealing with COVID. And, and he will increasingly turn the, the enormous powers of the office over to people who uh, share the views that he has that I disagree with on fundamental issues like immigration and, and, uh, and, I, and freedom of the press. And so I do think that four more years of the Trump administration will uh, more profoundly affect American uh, domestic politics than uh, <laughs> than the first four years. <laughs> then, 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 yeah. Well, no. Okay. Then the four. I'll, I'll say that. Then the first four years. Uh, internationally, you know, things change internationally much more quickly than they do domestically. I think, and and a new American president. Uh, with a different, you know, a different context of international events. Uh, yeah, you can, see, you can see America leading again. What you won't see is America unchallenged in the future. And I think our big foreign policy, the big foreign policy issue going forward is how do we deal with the rise of China? That to me is, there's other issues, climate change, right? Human rights, uh, the mess in the Middle East, international trade, which is incredibly important. But they all, uh, most of them also involved China. Because if you don't get China on for climate change, you don't get China on, uh, on trade issues, right? Uh, how we deal with China is the big, the big question. And I, uh, President Trump doesn't have a strategic vision of China. He, he reacts to China. He, he wants to do a trade deal, but the, he wants to blame them for the virus. He wants to be friends with Xi. He thinks it's great to lock the Uyghurs up, but he wants to blame them for our economic problems. I think we need a little, a, a little steadier hand in dealing with China. Yeah, so <clears throat> my sense of this is that uh, the US reputation uh, throughout the world has suffered pretty seriously. But I do get the sense that uh, just in my own kind of networks of in interacting with people ac across the world, a lot of people just think it was a, is a fluke, right? So I think a lot of people are like, okay, well, well, there's some weird stuff going on in America. Things seem a little scary, but you know, have that weird electoral college thing and he didn't win the whole popular vote anyways. And maybe he's just you know, uh, this isn't really the story of Americans. This is what like my international friends um, have to say to me. And so I do think if you come back with kind of a moderate left, old school uh, ambassador style individual like Biden, 
um, you you can maybe improve some of those uh, relationships again in a hurry. I mean, um, Obama was much more of an inter internationally liked. I think uh, it'll be Biden will be able to play well with the um, with the international actors. Um, but I do think that if if Donald Trump were to win again, um, the um, the ability for the country to find some level of unity, I think weakens, like and trust in society continues to weaken just because of his approach. Mm. And I think you're seeing the consequences. I mean, it's a lot of things, but you're seeing some of the consequences of him kind of eroding social trust and norms and goodwill towards other people in the country after four years. And I really do worry about if that continues to be the narrative from the president of the United States, how many other people start to think that's uh, just okay. And like truth becomes even more irrelevant. And um, so I am worried about the kind of the, the continued assault on information and on kind of good governance and on democratic accountability. And four years of it has felt really dangerous to our kind of multicultural liberal way of life. Um, and I do, I am concerned about four more years uh, of, a, of the country being able to not fracture uh, further. So, but I do, if, you know, uh, to your point, narratives change in a hurry. And I think there is a narrative that, uh, that, that Trump loses, loses in a landslide. It's a big statement to the rest of the world that these are not the types of values that Americans really cling to. Uh, we got called asleep at the wheel for a little bit, but, um, we go about rebuilding our reputation internationally and throughout the country. And you're gonna have some fringe groups, I think that are gonna remain, but there is certainly a narrative where the whole national narrative could turn around um, at the end of the year, I think. I mean, if, it, if there's a major decisive victory in the other direction, I think you could, uh, you could recover more quickly than people anticipate. Let's end on, a, let's end on an optimistic note. Yeah, and so uh, thanks for joining us this evening. We're gonna continue to do an every other week hot take. At some point, we might give you a break from having to just listen to Greg and I, um, but not yet. And in two weeks, that will be July 8th, and we'll come back on probably, we'll be back on Facebook Live at least one more time then. And uh, Greg, it's good to see you. Nice seeing you, Justin. And uh, stay inside, stay healthy, and uh, let me see if I can turn this Facebook Live thing off.